If you have your Bible with you, open up to 1 Kings chapter 12. Previously in chapter 11, we saw the very uh, rapid decline of King Solomon and the nation Israel. We saw a man in Solomon who was powerful, he was wealthy, and he was wise. He was a man who started well but didn't finish well. He was a man who loved many foreign women and amassed himself 1,000 wives and concubines together, if you were to combine them. He's a man who had been told that the nation or the kingdom of Israel would be torn out of his hands, that his, his time was short. It wasn't going to come from his hands, from his son's hands. The nation, of, the nation was going to be torn out because he was disobedient. We also saw the prophet that came to Solomon's servant. Remember, Solomon was disobedient, didn't follow the ways of the Lord. So Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, uh, was told that he would be given the northern ten tribes of Israel. We saw that last week as the prophet came. He had new clothing on. He took off the outer garment, ripped it into twelve pieces, and gave, the, and gave Jeroboam the ten, take ten tribes for yourself. And it represents the ten northern tribes of Israel. And the two southern tribes would remain in the lineage of David. That was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. They would stay in David. Uh, in his lineage. And Jeroboam during this time was given a promise uh, by God. It was in 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 38. It said this, then it shall be if you heed all that I command you, if you walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and I will end with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. An obedient Jeroboam, as an obedient servant of the Lord, Jeroboam had the opportunity to establish a parallel dynasty to the same as David did. An amazing opportunity he had, but, the, but there was a prerequisite. It required obedience to God. And what we're going to find is by the end of this chapter, we're not going to make it there tonight. We'll get there the next time we meet on a Thursday night. By the end of the chapter, we're going to find that, well, Jeroboam's already left the ways of the Lord. He's going to set up golden calves for the people to worship just like they did in the desert uh, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. We won't get there tonight, though, but that's coming in the future. Um, and as a result of the prophecy that was told to Jeroboam, Solomon was trying to kill Jeroboam. He was trying to kill him. Jeroboam had fled down to Egypt. Now, just in case you haven't been with us in the study at all, I just kind of want to reiterate, we've watched King David, his son, the, the, the kingdom was turned over to Solomon. Solomon took the throne of the nation of Israel. Remember, that's God's chosen people, Israel are. He, he asked the Lord for, the Lord said to Solomon, whatever you want, I'll give to you. And Solomon said, Lord, I don't know how to, I don't know how to rule your people. I need wisdom. So God said, I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you notoriety. I'll give you everything. And he gave it to Solomon. What we found out is Solomon was extremely wise, but he, he failed to follow his own wisdom. He failed to take the things that he knew and he failed to, live, failed to live them out practically. As a result, he began to let compromise slip into his life. By the end of his life, one small compromise had led to another. And he started out well, but he finished poorly before the Lord. And that's what we come. And, and then Solomon turns the, the, the kingdom over uh, to his son. And uh, uh, Rehoboam, you're going to meet two guys tonight. You're going to meet Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam is the son of King Solomon. I remember that because R comes right next to S in the alphabet. Rehoboam is right next to Solomon. So you're going to hear Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And if I get them confused, I'm sorry. But Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam was Solomon's servant. And the Lord had told, through the prophet, had told Jeroboam, the servant, that he was going to receive the ten northern tribes. Just remember the nation of Israel is made up of twelve tribes. They're occupying the promised land. The ten northern, one, northern tribes we're going to see are going to go with Jeroboam and, and, and the Judah. And the southern tribes will go with Rehoboam. So let's pick up in uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Let's watch as these things unfold. 
And Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son, he went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. Remember, King Solomon was trying to kill him, didn't want the will of the Lord here. That they sent and they called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we'll serve you. So he said to them, depart for three days, then come back to me, and the people departed. Interestingly enough, Rehoboam, I said, is the son of Solomon, and I think it's interesting, he is the only son of Solomon mentioned in the scriptures. 1,000 wives and concubines. He had to have a few more out there, right? You would think he's the only one mentioned in the scriptures, only one there. Now, he says he goes to Shechem. He's going to be made king by the, by the, by the people of Israel. Good question to ask, why Shechem? What's the big deal with Shechem? What was, is, is there a significant, whenever you're studying the Bible, you want to look for those things. Ask those questions. Why this city? Why that name? Why that town? Why Shechem? Is there a significance in Shechem? And if you're a Bible student or you've read the Bible, you know Shechem is something that appears pretty often. It was at Shechem that God first appeared to Abraham and promised to give him all the land. That's what, that took place at Shechem, all the land of Canaan. Jacob later settled there. Joseph was buried there. And after they entered the promised land, it was at Shechem that the Israelites stood between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they promised to follow the law of the Lord. It, that was at Shechem. They dedicated themselves to keep the Mosaic law. It was also the geographical center of the northern tribes. So it, had, it was a strategic place, but it also had a lot of historical and you could even say religious background. It was, a, it was a pretty important place. It was a sacred location and a good place to crown the next king of Israel. Now Jeroboam looked out for the people and the northern tribes wanted... Now, now this other guy, Jeroboam, comes in. He was looking out for the people and we read here that, they, that the northern tribes wanted Jeroboam to come with them. They wanted, them. they wanted Jeroboam to kind of be their representative as they went and talked to Rehoboam about the, about the problem. So Jeroboam, we said last week, he, he looked out for the people. He was, he was concerned about the, the heavy labor of the people. He was, he was, the, the people liked him. He, the people liked uh, Jeroboam. Their greatest concern... This is their greatest concern. We're going to read about it. So they, they, they're going to tell Jeroboam, Jeroboam, we want you to go to Rehoboam, and we want you to tell you what our biggest concern is. There's too much, there's too much work. There's too much bondage. There's too much taxes. So look at verse 3. Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came, and they, sp they spoke to Rehoboam, and they said, Your father made our yokes heavy. Now, therefore, lighten our burdensome service of your father, and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. In other words, they're saying to him, uh, Rehoboam, the first thing we want you to do is ease the burden of your father Solomon. Solomon was hard on us. It was, it was tough living under Solomon. He was a wise king, but he put a tremendous burden on the people, especially when it came to work, because he was building and so much, but also when it came to taxation. Remember how wealthy Solomon was? A lot of his wealth came from, it came from abroad, but it also came from taxation. They were very heavily taxed. That's the burden they're talking about here. The people of Israel wanted relief from this heavy taxation that Solomon had put them under. They wanted relief from the forced service, of, forced service that Solomon had as part of his reign. And they offered allegiance to Rehoboam. They said, we'll serve you. We'll, we'll, we'll serve you if, if, you'll just, if you'll relieve us from this heavy yoke that you put on us. Now, I find it interesting, and I like to go back and point these things out. 
If you remember way, way, way back, way, way, way back into 1 Samuel chapter 8, when, uh, when, when Israel was saying, we want a king. You know, Israel, had a, Israel was governed by God. That's what the name Israel means. But Israel looked to, to Samuel and they said, Samuel, all the other nations have kings. We want a king too. Can you get us a king, Samuel? And uh, Samuel was like, what do you mean you want a king? You have a king. God's your king. No, we want to be like all the other nations. And God said, well, let me tell you something. If you're going to have a king, you better be warned that through the, and he warned him through the prophet Samuel that it would be like this, that a king was someone who would take their sons and their daughters, that would take the best of their fields, that would tax them, that would take their livestock. And the people said, we don't care. We still want a king. Well, here it's happening. And I love it when the word of God says something many, many years beforehand, and then here it comes to fulfillment. It makes the, in my mind, it validates God's word. It's just one other point where you go, Wow, it really does all fit together. It really does make sense. The people still wanted a king. I'll give you a king. And they got King Saul. Then they got King David. Then they got King Solomon. And now here they are with King Rehoboam. And they said, listen, Rehoboam, we're working, you're working us too hard. You're taking too much of our stuff. We, we don't like this. Just give us a little bit of relief. Give us some tax relief and we'll serve you. Kind of sounds like American politics, doesn't it? What do you think God would have taken if he had remained what do you think God would? Do you think he was a demanding king that wanted their livestock and wanted their money and wanted their stuff? What would God ask of them? Just to be obedient, right? Just to be obedient. What, what would God have taken? I think it's just the opposite. I think the question we should be asking is, how much did they miss out on God offering them? But instead, they wanted their ways. They wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted what everybody else had. We, everybody's got a king. We want a king. I think it's tragic. That the, their greatest concern, here they are, we're going to go, we're going to make Rehoboam king, and their biggest concern is taxation. Their biggest concern is taxation. Unfortunately, they made no demand whatsoever to undo what Solomon had done. They didn't come and say, let's get rid of all these high places. Let's get rid of all these temples that Solomon built. Let's get all, all these wives that he had. He built temples to these different gods. Let, let's knock all these down. Let's, let's get right with Jehovah God. Let's, let's, let's get all this out. What do they say? Stop taxing us. I need, a, I need an easier life. Now, I don't, I don't want to live. I don't care about holiness. I don't care about right. I don't want to live holy. I just want to live easier. Take the burden off of me, would you? Provide for me. Don't, don't, don't make it that easy. You know, I, they missed that part. It's tragic. Taxation. Here they are coming before the king. There's no demand to tear down these high places. Solomon built to these pagan gods and his wives. There's no one says, let's go back to reading the law. Let's read what, what does God say? There, there's no reference to that whatsoever. They just simply say, hey, can you lower the taxes? Can you make us not have to work so hard? Can, can you just, just, just make, it, make our life a little bit easier, would you? Rehoboam doesn't even answer him. It doesn't make any promises. He says, I'll tell you guys what, go on, go on home for three days and come back and I'll give you an answer. Go ahead, go home for three days. Look at verse five. So he said to them, depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Go home for three days, come back to me. And the people left. And then verse six, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him and said, If you will be a servant to these people today, and serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Good job, Rehoboam. You went and got good counsel. 
Notice who he goes to. He goes to his father's advisors. They've got experience. They've been around for a while. They know how a government should run. Hopefully they've learned from the mistakes of Solomon. They couldn't control what he did, but they should be able to have a good big picture perspective. And here's what, he, here's what they say to him. The elders told him, you need to be a servant to the people and serve them. You need to be a servant to the people. You need to speak good words towards them. And if you do those two things, then they will serve you forever. You see, Rehoboam needed to have the proper perspective on leadership. He needed, to, he, he needed his mind, he needed to be clear on how is it that you should rule the people? How is it that you should be a king? What, what type of king should you be? And, he say, and, and right here, the, the elders say you need to be a servant king. You need to be a servant king. You don't need to be a, we don't need a dictator, somebody to, to, to you know, hurl insults and to, and to increase burdens. We need to be a servant king. Rehoboam, you need to be a servant king if, you, if you'll speak good words to him. If you see yourself, Rehoboam, as a servant to them, and you speak those good words to them, then they're going to be loyal to you forever. This is an important verse in leadership. So listen up, moms, dads, big brothers, big sisters, employers, leaders. The key to authority is service in humility. The key to authority over somebody is service in humility. What are they telling him? You need to serve them. Now, yes, you're the king. Everyone knows you're the king. That's fine. That's dandy. That's clear. Serve the people. You say, well, that's not what kings are supposed to rule the people. Order the people. The greatest king of all time said, whoever desires to come before, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was Jesus. That was Jesus. The one that will rule and reign forever. Said, I'm a servant. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve the people. That's the, that's the model that we have. Serve. How much, think about bosses. Let's just talk about bosses for a while. If you, if you go to work, you got a boss. Think about how, just think about your boss. If they saw themselves as an opportunity to serve, not to go get your coffee, but to provide everything you needed to do your job. If they saw that they want to serve you, they want to make sure you got everything you need, make sure you're comfortable, make sure everything's good so you can be as productive as you can be. You know, it happens that way with pastors. It's, you know, it's my job to serve you guys, whether it be cleaning bathrooms, whether it be cleaning up here, whether it be preparing for a Bible study. I need to see myself as a servant. That's what a pastor is. It's a servant. Sometimes people say, oh, no, you're a reverend. No, no, I'm not. Don't revere me. I, I need to see myself as a servant. I need to serve in humility. I don't need to tell you that I'm a pastor. I don't need to wear a name tag that says I'm a pastor. I need to do the job of a pastor and be a servant to the people. Help the people, guide the people, take care of the people. What do the people need? You know, I've heard it said, one pastor jokingly said, ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> well, sure it would be. You wouldn't have any ministry. There'd be no, there'd be no ministry. Of course it'd be great, you know. But no, it's the people. It's the people that we have to serve. The key to authority is, the, is service in humility. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, think about it, the Last Supper, the very night he's betrayed, he's washing feet. But do you remember what the apostles did? They were arguing about who was the greatest. He's washing feet. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who is it? Is it going to be, is it going to be Peter? Is it going to be John? Is it going to be James? Who is it? Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus takes up his towel and he girds up and he washes his feet. And look at what does Peter say? Not me, Lord. You can't wash my feet. No, no, you're too good to wash my feet. And Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any part with me. And what does Peter say? I'll wash my whole body then. Don't just wash my feet. Wash everything. 
But notice the heart of Jesus. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. And that's, this, that's the advice, in a sense, that, that, that Rehoboam's being given. Serve the people. See your job. Can you imagine if our politicians thought that way? Imagine if the politicians thought, I want to serve the people. I want to do what's best for the people. Forget the lobbying money. Forget the special interest groups. Forget all the people that got me elected. Forget all. I want to serve the people. What a powerful position to be in. How, how, how awesome would it be if we could send all of our politicians, both in Maryland and to the United States, and we knew they're all there to serve the people. What a different country we, we would live in, wouldn't it? It'd be an amazing place to live. Service, that's authority. You want to you have authority? Service in humility. As moms and dads, see yourselves as servants to your kids. Help them achieve. You're, you're, you're going to help them succeed in life. You're going to help them, you're going to teach them spiritually. They're not there to serve. They're not there to just to cut the grass. My kids think so. <laughs> right? No. Or the, di- or the di- dishes too, yeah. Did you guys do the dishes tonight? garbage yeah what else we got these kids for (laughs) wash the car clean the house house? all right but sometimes as parents that can be our attitude right they're there for me Uh -uh. our kids are in our lives for us to serve them you've been given children as a responsible with the with with the gift of children comes the responsibility of raising them and we have to do that right we have to do that with the right mindset and the right perspective you know, doesn't mean my kids can tell me what to do. Did the disciples tell Jesus what to do? No, but he still served them. He still served them. He did what was right. Did he protect them when he needed to protect them? Of course he did. Was he there for them when they needed him? He was there for them. He was a servant to them. Not, see, sometimes we think servant, we think, oh, I'm going to be a doormat. I'll let my teenager wipe his feet all over. That's not, what, that's not the way Jesus was with the department. He had no problem correcting Peter, did he? He had no problem when Peter put his foot in his mouth, pointed out. Neither did God, you know. Up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I think we should all stay here. What did he say? Quiet. This is my son. Hear him. You know, there's no problem with that at all. It's a, it's a training process. Let's see what Rehoboam does. Verse 8. But he, that's Rehoboam, rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he consulted with young men. Young men. Who had grown up with him. His buddies. Who stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people whom have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it light on us. Here's what I want you to say. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now whereas my my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. Two completely different answers. After not liking the advice that he received from the older and more experienced advisors, Rehoboam sought counselors who would give him the advice that he wanted to hear, didn't he? You know, we call that advice shopping. It's where you you go to the person that's going to tell you what you want to hear. You go to the one that's going to, he didn't want to serve the people. He wanted to be king. He wanted to rule with an iron fist. And and I'm going to show you how I'm going to rule. You thought my father was tough. You wait until you get a load of me. You know, my my little finger is bigger than his waist. He whipped you. I'm going to scourge you. That's the way that he wanted to rule. So he found somebody who would tell him that that was okay. 
He went to the, more, the, the wise rulers, the experienced rulers, the one that had been around the people, that had watched the people serve King Solomon, carrying a same vision, building for him. They'd watched all this take place. Listen, advice shopping is never a good thing. It's not, you're not really looking for advice. Where you just keep asking people for advice until you hear what you want to hear. That's not a good thing. You don't just, you know, you just, you just don't do that. If that's the case, you don't really want advice at all. You just want somebody to agree with you and tell you what you want to do is okay. So you go from person to person or place to place until they tell you exactly what you want to hear. And then, fine, they, I, we're in agreement. Picture this. Man, married for a number of years, no longer happy in his marriage. Things aren't going great. Things aren't going bad. He's just not happy. You know, it's just the, the flame's dying out. I, just, I need something new. It's just, you know, but I really don't know what to do. Internally, he's already decided that he wants to get a divorce. He's already decided he wants out of the relationship. But he can't just do that because he knows that's kind of wrong. And he, he knows that there'd be hurt along the way. And he knows there'd be, you know, there, there'd be people that are hurt. And uh, what do I do? I don't really want to be here. I don't really want to do. Well, if I go and ask the pastor, well, I don't want his advice, so I'm not going to go there. I, I know. I'll go and ask the guys at work. Because I, I, can, I, can, I can tilt this whole thing like I'm the good guy. And I can, still, I can make everybody, I'll tell them my side of the story. Let me tell you guys, here, here's what's going on. So you go into work one day, you're moping around, and oh, I'm not feeling so, what's wrong, what's wrong? Oh, tell us what's wrong. Oh, let me tell you what my wife did. And then you unload, and you make her look like, I mean, remember, there's always how many sides to every story? Three. At least three. At least three. There's his side, her side, and the truth. And then maybe some other witnesses along the way, if there was. There's always three. But you skew it your way. You, you make it sound like she's the bad one, you're the good one. And what do they say? Ah, I'd get out of that marriage if I were you. Ah, I'd get, don't, don't stay in there. Get out of that. What, you, you don't deserve that. You deserve better. I can't believe she didn't make you dinner. You, you need to go find a good woman. But that's what we do to justify and rationalize our sin. You know, if I go to a pastor or somebody at church, they're going to tell me to suck it up and I'm probably the problem. But if I go to my friends at work, they're going to relate to me because they're doing the same thing at their house. They're thinking, well, yeah, if I could get out, I would. And, and, and you go advice shopping on it. And you go looking for who's going to give you the advice that you want. And, and when you do that, oh, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Listen carefully. When it comes to your life, ask yourself this question. Who are you seeking? Who do you seek advice from? The first and foremost place that you should get advice is from the Word of God. That's where you get advice from the Word of God. You go to the Word of God and say, what does God's Word say about my situation? But people don't want to do that either. Then I have to listen. Then I'm for it. Well, I, it's like, I don't know, so I don't have to listen. Don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. But there should also be a few people in your life. A few. Notice I said a few. A couple. Not many. A few people in your life that you can go to that will give you godly advice. And you have to know that they're not going to tell you what you want to hear. You have to know that the advice that they're going to give you is going to be biblical and they're going to tell you what the truth is, whether you like it or not. Whether you listen or not, you need to hear that. You need to know that. We can't just be shopping around for advice. Do you have a few godly people in your life right now, today, that you could go to and say, I need some help on this. What do you think? I need some help. If you don't, you need to figure out who that is. You need, you need to identify some people so that when there's a problem, you can call them up on the phone and say, hey, listen, I need to talk to you. Can I, can I meet with you tomorrow? Can we have lunch? I need to run some things by you. Tell me what you're thinking. Don't let the whole problem unravel and then go to them and say, can you fix this? Because they can't. They could have they helped you along the way when it was all starting, but once it gets too late, sometimes it's too far. 
You know, sometimes people will, I'll, I'll, I'll sit in marriage counseling sometimes and the marriage has been a wreck for 10 years and I can't fix that in a, in a couple of marriage counseling sessions. I can tell you what God's word says, but I can't make you obey it. I, can't, I can show you what it says, but I can't do it for you. I can encourage you and I can lead you in that way, but it, it ultimately follows, falls on, on their shoulders. So when it comes to counsel, who do you get counsel from? Do you take counsel from Dr. Phil? Oprah, I mean, I watch the TV shows. I'm, that's where I'm going to get my counsel from. Whatever they say is good. Maury Povich, or I don't even know who else is on anymore. Is he still around? I don't know. Do, do you get counsel from what? <laughs> no more Maury. All right, forget Maury. Where do you get your counsel from? Do you go to God's Word? Do you go to Bible-believing, Bible-following Christians? That, that will give you what you the truth, or do you go to the people at work? Do you go to the guys at work and only tell them half a story? At least if you're going to go to the people at work, the worldly people, at least tell them the whole story. At, least, at, at bare minimum, tell them the truth. Don't, don't give them just your side of the story. But that's something we should have. Do you have somebody in your life that you could call up right now and say, I've got something happening, what do you think I should do? And you know that they're going to say, well, according to the scripture, or I believe, and you know that they're a godly person living a godly life. If you don't, you need to identify one. And if I could ever help anybody, please call me. I would be more than happy to help you. Now, let's see how this works out for, let's, let's see how it works out for Rehoboam. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me a third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and, he reje and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people for the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Did you catch that? He followed the counsel of the younger men. But did you catch that there? For the turn of events was from the Lord. The turn of events was from the Lord. This is a picture of God's sovereignty. God managed this whole series of events. God was in charge of this whole thing. But I want to be clear. God did not make Rehoboam take the bad advice. God didn't make Rehoboam choose the younger men. God knew that Rehoboam, based on his foreknowledge, would choose the younger men. He knew the type of heart that he had. He knew that he would do this. But he didn't make him choose it. But he, let, he allowed him to follow it. He allowed him to do it because he knew what he would do. He allowed him to make this critical error uh, of his sinful heart. He allowed it to happen. He allowed it to unfold. Because why? Because he had told him that the kingdom was going to be torn, the, the northern ten tribes were going to be torn away. It was God working behind the scenes in this, but don't make the mistake of thinking that Rehoboam didn't have a choice, because he did have a choice. He had two counsels which he could have followed. He could have served the people, or he could have chastised the people, and he chose to chastise the people. He didn't have to. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, notice also, dear friends, that God is in the events which are produced by the sin and the stupidity of men. This breaking up of the kingdom of Solomon into two parts was the result of Solomon's sin and Rehoboam's folly. Yet God was in it. This thing is from me, saith the Lord. God had nothing to do with the sin of the folly, 
but in some way which we can never explain, in a mysterious way in which we are to believe without hesitation, God was in it all. God's plan was unfolding. He told them what would happen. I love it when God does that. Somehow we think that it's not going to happen that way. God told them what would happen. Now, how do you think the people are going to respond? Look at verse 16. Now, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. The people were rejecting not only Rehoboam, they're they're rejecting David's dynasty. They're rejecting everything David had done. We don't want any part of any of your family, ever. We're, We're done, we're separating. Verse 18, then King Rehoboam sent Adoram to the, who was in charge of the revenue. But all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So Rehoboam's answer to them saying, we're going home, we're not playing in your little game. He sends out his little warriors, he sends out his tax collector. We're going to go collect money from you. And the people said, you're not collecting money from us, and they stoned him. They killed him, stoned him to death, killed him. And Rehoboam gets in his chariot and he flies on home, back to Jerusalem. Enough of this Shechem, I'm out of here. I'm heading home. This isn't working out so good for me. You've got a leader who refuses to accept the truth. He wouldn't listen to him. They told him they weren't. He sends his tax collector to collect the taxes and the people stone him to death. In fear for his life, Rehoboam takes off running, takes off running. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. This is where the nation Israel splits. This is the split that takes place. From now on in the scriptures, when we say Israel, we're referring to the ten northern tribes. When we say Judah, we're referring to the two southern tribes. The nation Israel is split. It's split right down the middle. That's it. It's split. It's it's split. Verse 20 Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only, and by that time Benjamin had been absorbed into the tribe of Judah. The prophecy of 1 Kings chapter 11 has been fulfilled. What the prophet said would happen, Rehoboam is ruling over Judah, Jeroboam is now ruling over the ten northern tribes. The nation that is once united, the nation that God... The nation that God built out of, inside of Egypt and took him out of Egypt, put him in the desert, brought him into the promised land, gave him all the land. They were supposed to be governed by God. The nation Israel was going to represent God to all of the world. All of the world would see the blessings of God, of Jehovah, of, of, of Yahweh God. They were supposed to see that through the nation Israel. And now here we find that there's a division among them. There's a split. They're split. In verse 21, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin. 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel. A civil war is brewing that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren 
the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. Shemaiah, only place he's mentioned in scriptures. Rehoboam goes back to Jerusalem, gathers 180,000 chosen men. What was his goal? We're going to go whip them into submission. I couldn't tax them. They weren't going to come willingly. We're going to go beat them. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to start a war against them. We're going to defeat them. We're going to make them submit one way or another. They're, they're, they're moving in men. They're, the battle plan has been designed. They're, they're on the way. They're getting ready to go. It's taking place. And all of a sudden, one man, one godly man, Shemaiah, the man of God, says, Rehoboam, don't do it. God says this is all from him. God said this would happen. It's all from him. He said it would happen. Don't go up and fight against who? Your brothers. Don't fight against your brothers. What a tragic day in the, in the nation of Israel. Let every man return to his home, for this thing is from me, God said. Because Solomon didn't obey the ways of the Lord. Now the family is split. Now the brothers are about to not just have a fist fight. They're about to come to killing one another for, to try to bring them back into submission. Fortunately, it says they obeyed the word of the Lord. Rehoboam intended to make war against the northern ten tribes, but a man of God heard from the Lord and said, don't do it. And very wisely they obeyed. Now, we're going to close here, but not right away. I want you to, I want to, we're to close a little bit early tonight, but I want you to understand something. This is a, a major historical point in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is splitting right now. It's splitting down the middle, so to speak. Ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. It'll, it, 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 even to this day, it's not united again. It's still split. They're, 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 it's, it's still not there. In 1920 is when this happens. 1920 BC, the separation, this split is. So it's about a thousand years before Christ is born, approximately, is when this split takes place. During this, tri- during this time, over the next several hundred years, these northern tribes, they're not going to have a single godly king. Not a single one. Not one. The southern tribe is going to have a total of 19 kings. Eight of them are going to be good, godly kings, and 11 of them are going to be bad, godly kings. Ungodly, bad, godly, ungodly, that sounds better. (laughs) Bad, godly kings. They're going to be ungodly kings. In 722 B.C., so just about 200 years later, the northern tribes will be destroyed and carried away into what's called the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians are going to come down, they're going to conquer them, and they're going to wipe them out and carry them into captivity, and they won't exist as Israel. In 605 B.C., not quite 100 years later, maybe 80-some years later, the southern tribe, Judah, is going to be taken away into Babylonian captivity. What was once a, a, a nation, powerful nation, Solomon was the wisest man in just a few hundred years. It's all going to be wiped out. It's all going to be wiped out. They're they're split. They're going to be taken away in captivity. But the Jews who were carried away to Babylon, they're going to come back. Underneath of the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah and Zerubbabel, they're going to come back and they're going to begin to rebuild the temple. And they're going to begin to put the wall of the city back up. And after they're done rebuilding it, and that's going to be... uh, uh, they're going to be in Babylonian captivity about 70 years. And then so about 70 years later, they're going to come back and start to rebuild that. That's going to be around 522 B.C. So for 522 B.C., the temple is going to stand in Jerusalem all the way up until after the time of Christ. 
So 522 BC, Christ is going to be, Christ died in about 32 AD. So you could say about almost 600 years, 550, 600 years, all the way up that that Judah will be back occupying Jerusalem and they'll be all the way up there until 70 AD. In 70 AD, what's going to happen in 70 AD? The Romans are going to come in and they're going to destroy the temple. They're going to destroy Jerusalem and it's going to be completely wiped out in 70 AD. The Jewish people would then be scattered all over the world without a homeland, without a country. The nation of Israel will cease to exist except in their own minds because they'll call themselves Jews. They they won't be around anymore. And then what will happen? World War II will take place in 1948. They'll be granted to be a nation again. In 1948, Israel became a nation again. The story didn't end. Didn't end when they were taken into captivity. It didn't end. As what we see happening in 1948, I hope you understand, that was the first part of a major prophecy in the Bible with the nation Israel coming back together, getting a nation again. I want to read it to you. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. We've read about the split tonight, but I want to show you what the, what, what the prophet Ezekiel says. Ezekiel chapter 37. We're going to look in verse 15. Ezekiel chapter 37. It's in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. It's on page 762 in my Bible. 37. I want you to see this because it's important. The story doesn't end with Israel's division. As you study the nation Israel and you see the hand of God weave throughout it, it's gonna, it, it just it blows your mind. Here's what the prophet Ezekiel says. Verse 15, chapter 37, verse 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and the children of Israel and his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all of the house of Israel and his companions. So he's saying, take two sticks. One represents Israel, one represents Judah. Verse 17, then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you saying, will you not show us what, this, what, what you mean by this? What's this mean? Say to them in verse 19, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand, and the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. In other words, he's talking about bringing the nation of Israel back together again. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations... That's where they were before 1948. They were scattered among the nations, scattered abroad, living all over the place. I will take the children from among the nations, wherever they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Israel has not had their own land since 70 AD. So from 70 AD to 1948, you do the math. I'm going to say approximately 1900 years. They have not had a land. I'm going to bring them into their own land. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. 
They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there and their children and their children's children forever, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever my tabernacle also shall be with them indeed i will be their god and they shall be my people the nations also will know that i the lord sanctify israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore god says i'm going to do what they couldn't they will represent god to the rest of the world in time my friends this process began when israel became a nation in 1948 that's when it began. He brought the nation into its own land. And he's saying, I will bring it back together. For almost the 2,000, 1,900 years, the Jewish people lived without a land. And now we're watching them flock to Israel. Right now, last year, 2015, about 30,000 people moved to Israel. Jewish people left the country they were in and moved to Israel. See, that's not too many. It's about 82 a day. 82 people a day leaving the country they're in and they're moving to Israel. These are, these are Hebrew Jewish people who say we're going back to our country. Over the, since 1948, over three and a half million Jews have relocated from around the world into the nation Israel. And that number continues to grow. Some more, some high, it's higher some years than others, but it continues to grow. We're still waiting for a lot of this prophecy to be fulfilled. David's not on the throne in Israel. There's not a temple in Israel that's going to stand forever. It's not there yet, but we know that it's coming. God's going to fulfill this through the tribulation period and on into the millennial reign. We're going to see Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David, where he will then be the king that will never forsake them. You see, oftentimes in Scripture, one of the debates in, in theology, especially when it comes to end times, is they try to, they, they, people buy into what's called replacement theology. They take all the promises for the Jews and they apply them to the church. God's not done with the Jewish people. This prophecy is not fulfilled yet. If we, you can't understand the book of Revelation unless you understand that God is not done with the Jewish people. If you take the book of Revelation and you study and you look at it through the eyes of the Christians, there's no, the church isn't mentioned after chapter 3 anymore. It's chapter 2, chapter 3, all the churches are mentioned, and John's taken up. It doesn't mention. We can't replace the nation, we can't replace Israel with, with the church. What's taken place here is absolutely amazing. We can see the hand of God over thousands of years we, we get to go back and look at it. We've come this far. We're standing right here at the doorstep of this prophecy being fulfilled. When will it be done, Rob? I don't know. I wish I had that answer. No one knows when it'll be done. The next major event, I believe, will be the rapture of the church. I believe Jesus will come back. We'll meet him in the air. We'll be taken up. At some point, it'll happen the tribulation. Some short period after that, an antichrist will rise to power. The seven-year tribulation period will take place. After that, we'll come down. The battle of Armageddon will take place. We'll rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, a literal millennial reign. That's where I fall. That's what's coming. But when we look at this, we go, wow, God is not done. How do you know he's not done? Because that's not fulfilled. It hasn't been fulfilled. It's not there because it says forever. 
It says it's going it's to be a temple there forever. We don't see that yet. The temple that was there was destroyed in 70 AD. David's not on the throne there. Jesus isn't on the throne there. There's nobody in the line of David ruling Israel right now, but it's coming. It's coming. We're living in exciting times. And oh, how I can't wait to see it unfold. Going, and I'm just mentioning it briefly, being in Israel is an amazing place to be. When you read stuff like this, and you look, this is where it took place. This is where it's coming back. When you walk across that temple mount, and you think, this is where it's going to be built. Christ is going to come through the east gate. He's going to rule and reign right here on this temple mount, just like it was before. That's what makes Israel so special when you get to go over there, if you ever get a chance. It's an amazing place to be. God is clearly at work in the nation of Israel. If we can see him at work there, I also know that right now we're living in the church age. We're living in the dispensation of grace, it's called. At some point, the church is going to be removed from this, and then God will continue his work with the nation of Israel, which will usher in the seven-year period of tribulation. And if you want to know more about that, you can pick up the study on Revelation. Uh, it's on the website. If you want to hear more about that, you can download that and get your own copy for it. If you don't have a computer, ask Kevin. He'll make a copy for you about studying through the book of Revelation. But what we can see is God is at work here. Our time, think about it. Before 1948, you'd read this prophecy and you'd go, when's that going to happen? And then we say, 1948, that's going to happen. A lot of people thought that because it talks about one generation, they thought it would be done by 1988. That's why there was a lot of books, you know, 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 88. And there was a lot of prophecy around, you know, Jesus returning in 88. We don't know when he's coming back. We're not sure of it. But we better be ready for it. Are you ready? I am. Are you ready to come back? Is there blood? You go, oh, I love ones. I don't know. Go, you better go tell them. You better, you better go share as quickly as you can because we don't know when he's coming back. But if you really believe that he's coming back, won't that change the way that you live tomorrow? Will it change the way that you think of Christmas? The way that you live through this holiday season? You might not see Christmas. We might be in the clouds tonight. Hey, Rob, guess you don't have to prepare for Christmas message. Nope, Jesus is teaching. He could tell us the real story. How cool would that be? Keep that perspective that Jesus will return at any moment. It really will affect the way that you live day by day. It'll help get your mind off yourself and onto him. Expect him to return. He's coming back. It's just a matter of when. Let's pray. Father, may we be ready for your return. Lord, you've promised in the word to come back. Just as we see your hand in the nation Israel, you're at work. We have the ability of going back and looking at things historically that have all come true that you said would happen. Yet sometimes when you delay and when you tarry, Lord, we're short-sighted. We forget and we, we get so focused on ourselves and our own life that we, we forget that you really might come back tonight or tomorrow night or next week or next month or next year. Lord, would we keep the proper perspective? Would we see ourselves as servants to those you've placed under us? Would we serve in humility, ultimately realizing that we're serving you? But Lord, as always, while we're waiting, there's work to be done. There's ministry to be done. There's people that need to hear about you. There's things that we need to do in your name. So Father, may we be busy about your work. May we not just give a gift this Christmas to someone in need. May we do it in your name. As you move on our hearts to minister to those people that we come into contact with, may we do it in your name. May we not just tell them about you, may we introduce them to you. May we give them that opportunity to come to know you. 
Father, I thank you for the work. I thank you for the prophecies. I thank you for the partial fulfillment that we're seeing. Lord, may we leave here excited about what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.